Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. and welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your guest host, Lisa Finkel. I've had the privilege of working with your regular host, Stacey LeBaron, since I joined the board of directors of the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society three years ago. It's been quite amazing for me to have the opportunity to tap Stacey's incredible experience and knowledge of all uh, issues related to cats. I frequently say she's probably forgotten more about cats than most of us will ever know. Uh, so we thought it would be fun to have Stacey as our guest, turn the tables, and uh, do this periodically so that our podcast audience has a chance to get their own questions answered and to benefit from her insights. You can always uh, go on our Facebook page to give us questions you'd like Stacy to answer on future shows because we want you to be sure you're getting the help and information that you need. Stacy, thanks for being a guest on your own show. Thank you so much for hosting the show. It's uh, it's my pleasure. My first question for you is, is something that I, I never asked you once you told me uh, about your plans to do this. What if event or thought or inspiration motivated you to start the Community Cats podcast? Well, many people have known that I was have been involved with and continue to be involved with the mentoring program with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. And over the course of the last five years, I've been able to work with 80 different organizations all across the United States. And I certainly learned a lot about those organizations, the people and the passion behind those organizations. And I've had so many fantastic phone calls about about their stories, about their challenges, that I really felt that these stories needed to be shared with others. It's not just the mentoring group's stories, but we all have stories. And it's those stories that can be impactful and can empower us to believe that we can do more for the cats in the community. And I wanted to be able to have a venue where we could really share and inspire people to take action to help cats in their own communities, their own backyards. The sharing and the amazing network you have really makes this quite powerful. Uh, I know that um, listening to a, a number of the podcasts, I have learned so much myself. What are some of the things you've heard from your guests thus far that have maybe surprised you or caused you to think differently or confirmed some things that you felt you knew? So one thing, the spay neuter message is obviously it's very clear and it's out there. I think we all want every cat in need out all across the country and it needs to have access to low cost spay neuters, really a high priority. So that's something that has been very present in most of our shows. And we have also talked about in several of the shows talked about the importance of targeting. The other thing, though, that really has surprised me is how other areas and other niches really play a key and important role with our community cats. So uh, when we had the folks from the National Kitten Coalition on, as well as the Missing Pet Partnership, I found they were really very unique stories and really impactful because those are important components of resources that we need in every community. And it's not just about the sort of spay-neuter mantra out there. It's about trying trying to find lost pet to find their homes, to treat neonatal kittens or how to deal with, you know, a litter of kittens that you find by a woodshed, what's the appropriate approach. So it's sort of that niche stuff that we really have organizations that are diving deep or volunteers that are really diving deep into those areas, getting to know their specialties and are willing to share that. And it just adds to that wealth of knowledge that any community volunteer will have in order to help cats in the community. And I just, you know, so thrilled. The pet food pantry conversation is another one that just gets to me. These supportive services that sort of revolve around uh, spay, neuter, and
and wellness for cats. Uh, it's just a really dynamic package, I think. Yeah, I was going to, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the pet food pantry as well. And uh, as you know, I refer to something called the feline ecosystem because you don't need just one kind of rescue or one kind of organization or one kind of effort to support cats. You really need all of these organizations, you know, working in the areas where they've developed the expertise. Yeah. And then oftentimes it's organizations as well as individuals that try to think about the the toolkit, you know, that we all have to have. And that for me, that toolkit kind of keeps getting heavier and heavier, but yet it's more impactful too. So given that, um, the fact that there are so many different organizations or, or efforts needed, what do you think are the three biggest priorities right now to make the kind of big picture change you'd like to see for community cats? I am probably going to cheat, Lisa. (laughs) And I can't get away with three. I have to go to four. But I will package one as I certainly still feel that uh, spay, neuter, as well as wellness is important. We still have many areas of the country that there isn't affordable spay, neuter for cats. So I think we're still building out on that national capacity. I think that's at the top of the list at this point in time. For organizations, another priority is developing developing sustainable fundraising to help support the spay-neuter programs and the wellness programs. I think fundraising is ever everlasting challenge for many organizations, and I think we need some real dedicated efforts focusing on fundraising, whether it's event fundraising, dedicated appeals, grant writing that's specifically focused for supporting spay and neuter. Oftentimes, when uh, some organization starts a clinic, They try and really make sure that that clinic is always breaking even without necessarily fundraising behind it. And I think we're now at the point where maybe the low-hanging spay-neuter fruit, so to speak, is gone. And we now are at the point where we're going to have to be offering free spay-neuters, you know, with a 20-pound bag of food and possible transportation offered for that cat in order to get that cat into the clinic. And that takes fundraising efforts. Um, I also would like to touch upon a challenge that we have with what I call the hidden population. And it's a population of cats that may not necessarily be truly feral, but yet they may not necessarily be the truly adoptable cats that do well in a large scale, humane society environment. And I think that at this point in time, the cat community is sort of wrestling with what to do with that population. Do we just return them to field, out to field, or how do we bring them back in to a shelter or how do we adopt them out? That's a great list, Stacey. I, um, you know, I think that especially the fundraising for larger organizations that have, you know, some infrastructure, perhaps, you know, paid marketing folks uh, on staff, fundraising uh, is a challenge, but I can't imagine what a challenge it must be for a small grassroots community group. Well, yeah, and they oftentimes don't have any fundraising experience at all. And it's really challenging for them just to even ask for a donation. When you're just starting, you know, you're worried about your traps, you're worried about fostering kittens, but then you're also worrying about, you know, getting money in the bank. So there's a lot of new skills that young organizations really need to learn. Well, that um, is a great lead in to talking a little bit about the mentoring program that you've oversee for MRFRS that was... um, 
supported for five years by PetSmart Charities and now is uh, going in a slightly different direction where actually you worked with a number of community organizations that had to raise funds, some of them for the first time. Well, tell us about the secrets or the, the insights of empowering other people to undertake a new project to help cats in their community. I will describe what our current program is, which is called the Primer Grant Program, and you can find that on uh, www.mrfrs.org under the programs page, and you just click on mentoring, and it's called the Primer Grant Program. And it was uh, this year; it was the first year we tried it. And basically, we we're asking a very small group with revenues of under sixty thousand dollars a year to initiate a new fundraising effort that will hopefully raise them up to a thousand dollars or beyond. You certainly don't stop once you hit a thousand dollars. And then we coach them on different fundraising techniques and they put together a proposal of what their new technique is going to be. So it could be a letter writing campaign. Several of our groups have never done any sort of a mailing out to their donors. They don't have a donor list. Others did a appeal to their board of directors as well as doing um, some fair campaigns and stuff. One did a spaghetti dinner, a spaghetti dinner, um, <laughs> and also tried a t-shirt campaign as well as doing an e-card campaign. So it was a, it's a way for them to try something new, to raise money specifically for spay neuter. And then this private foundation was able to match up to $1,000 of an additional $1,000 of spay neuter money. So if you raise $1,000, you are going to get doubled to $2,000 of spay neuter dollars, which means a lot for these groups considering, you know, during the course of a whole year, they're pulling in less than $60,000. And one of our groups was pulling in their annual revenues for the year was about $6,500. So for them to get $2,000, that's like a game changer for them. The thing that's just whole mentoring that strikes me is just so awesome is uh, we do a lot of our work via conference calls. So we have phone calls with six or eight groups on the phone at a time, and it's done on a regular basis over a three to four month period. And these groups get to know each other. They become friends. And even though they might be, one might be in Wisconsin and the other one might be in Florida, they all very oftentimes have some of the same challenges and they want to support each other. They become a team, a team for success. And so having this relationship is great. So the program is good. All of these groups were successful. We actually, they ended up raising over $20,000 as a combined effort. And then with the matching funds of another $10,000, so it became over $30,000 for spay neuter with an investment from this foundation of $10,000. So it was a really good leveraged opportunity. But at the end of the day, many of these groups, when I've been mentoring them, the last phone call is very sad. They don't want the phone calls to end because they want that community to stay together. They want their family, the support network to stay together. And so that's another uh, objective of mine at the Community Cats podcast is to create community so that we have this feeling of family and we have that support and we all don't feel alone out there. Um, And it's just been a pleasure to work with these groups to be able to have them make these new friends. Um, Another thing I've noticed listening to some of the podcasts is this is as much about people as it is about cats. Yeah, and I would say almost even more so. I find over the 20 plus years that I've been in this business, I've, I've found it a very isolating business. There are oftentimes where you feel like you're very much alone. Um, you're very challenged. You don't know how you're going to put your next foot forward and you feel like you're the only one that is suffering. And we shouldn't be suffering, but we all have hard times and we all have challenges. And that's where we need our friends. We need our support networks to come through for us and to help us. And um, in Mass 
Massachusetts, we have a Yahoo group called MassCats. And in its own way, it provides quite a bit of support for many people who are individuals and very small organizations. It's an outlet that they wouldn't have had 20 odd years ago. Absolutely. The internet really does help bring us together. And again, the the podcast and your website and Facebook page will um, also help create that kind of virtual community. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide and seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night, with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash Reveal Wild. One interesting term I'd never heard before that I learned from you when I joined uh, the board at uh, MRFRS is the term kitten-free zone. Now, we all love kittens, but we know that a kitten-free zone is really a much better situation for community cats. Do you want to describe what that is and how you get there? Sure. Um, I coined this term, I would say, in the late 90s. So when the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society started doing its trap-neuter return program on the Newburyport waterfront, we obviously pulled in the first year or two, I think 120 kittens came off the waterfront area and were socialized and spayed and neutered and vaccinated and put up for adoption and adopted out, you know, into loving homes. You know, so in those first few years, you know, we always had plenty of kittens from our Newburyport area and from our colonies as we were trapping and trying to trap those last cats. And around 92, 93, 94, we didn't have the drop trap technology apparent to us at that time. So we were doing a lot of sort of really of the old school trapping techniques. And so it was a lot of time and effort that went into, you know, getting that last cat. But by 1998 or so, we really didn't have any or many kittens coming from the Newburyport waterfront, as well as the greater Newburyport area. At that point in time, our adoption program was in full swing. We were known as the location to adopt out cats and kittens. And so we needed to source more kittens uh, for our potential adopters than what our local area could provide. So that's my definition of a kitten-free zone is an area where there's greater demand than the supply of the local area can provide for the community. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's, I guess it's sort of an economics type of uh, thought process. Um, what, how we solved that was we went outside the area. So we would drive to Lowell or we would drive to Springfield and at that point in time, they were overwhelmed with kittens and we would go, our foster care coordinator would go out and bring back 30 to 40 kittens from those facilities. And then we would load up our foster homes um, with kittens from outside of the area. But uh, it would took us, you know, about six years for us to really be able to reach outside of our local geographic area in search of a kittens. And I would pr- be pretty confident in saying at this point in time, all of Massachusetts is a kitten-free zone. I would- I was, I was just going to uh, say that you took the words out of my mouth because really the uh, amount of kittens that we uh, get in during the summer, thanks to all the, the, the different spay-neuter initiatives in the state, is um, is amazingly down. And, you know, I keep uh, saying you could probably charge $500 for a kitten and you'd, <laughs> you'd probably still get some buyers. But um, we're quite lucky here in Massachusetts that that's uh, happened and it would be wonderful to have that as uh, an ultimate goal in so many other places. One of the 
important bedrocks, I think, that has helped us be so successful in Massachusetts is that we've had a lot of leadership around pediatric spay and neuter, as well as spay and neuter before adoption. And I think that that has helped us be a lot more impactful um, with our efforts in reducing the cat overpopulation situation in Massachusetts. Stacey, this is a question that you always ask your guests. And so I, uh, I thought we'd get the benefit of your response. If you saw a cat in the street or when you see a cat in the street, what would you do and what's the kind of mental checklist you would go through to make a determination what the right thing would be to do for that cat? So I have I have my homework done here, Lisa. I have my checklist. <laughs> um, and um, obviously the first thing would be to check for an ear tip, uh, see if the cat is ear tipped and look at the cat's body composition. So if the cat appears to be healthy and has an ear tip and, you know, I, I would say much of the determination on healthy is probably portly. I've seen many portly feral cats with nice ear tips. Um, and I would say that then I would feel quite confident that there is somebody caring and feeding for that cat. Um, so I would just let that cat be and uh, assume it's got a good place in the community. If the cat is injured or distressed in any way, shape or form or had been hit by a car um, or looks uh, sickly, then I would make all efforts to uh, try and catch that cat either via a trap or depending on its disposition. Um, when I lived in Cambridge, there was a very nice little sweet old 16-year-old toothless black cat that I used to feed. And, you know, if he was in any sort of distress, I would have had no qualms putting him in a carrier. But if, if there's any cat that, you know, seems at all fractious, uh, it's, it's best practice to be conservative and to trap a cat. And then I would seek the assistance of a local humane society or a low-cost spay-neuter clinic or a low-cost wellness clinic. Um, certainly, I would do my research online to check the organization out, make sure I'm comfortable where I'm bringing the, bringing the cat. I would also take an analysis of the environment where the cat lives. Is, is Does the cat seem to be in a high abandonment area? Is it, you know, a dangerous part of the community? If it's a very friendly cat and if it's in a very dangerous area, then you might be more concerned about that cat getting in the hands of someone that might do harm to that cat. So uh, feral cats have no problem sort of taking care of themselves in that kind of environment because they're not going to come near people. They're not going to get caught or petted. But if there's a friendly cat, somebody, you know, a cat that might have been abandoned, then I might be more aggressive in um, trying to bring that cat in. And also if there's a blizzard happening, which often happens in in New England, uh, if there's two feet of snow out there and there's an extremely friendly cat that does not look like it's uh, been cared for, its coat looks a little bit rough, that kind of thing. In the wintertime, you're going to be more aggressive with getting assistance for that cat. I personally, and this may sound a little bit like tutti frutti or whatever, but I want to look in the eyes of that cat if at all possible and just sort of see what that cat is presenting to me. When we ran all of our feral cat colonies on the Newburyport waterfront, our feeders got to know those cats very, very well. And if I'm feeding a group of cats or getting to know even a new cat, I just want to take a look at that cat and check it out and just sort of see what, what you're getting as a sense for that cat's desires. I would certainly contact a local trap new to return group to see if anything is happening in that area as a courtesy. You know, one thing that we did in Newburyport was with our feral cat colonies was that if there were any uh, recently abandoned cats, we were very, very quick to scoop them up and get them into our adoption program because our objective was to have no more cats on the Newburyport waterfront. And when the colonies died out, the abandoned cats 
cats that may have come over the years were scooped up and they were put in our adoption center. So, you know, today we don't have any uh, free roaming cats on the Newburyport waterfront that we're currently feeding. Which is a great story and, you know, really speaks a lot to having a lot of patience and having a lot of discipline about addressing the needs of community cats, regardless of where they are. Stacy, for our next uh, Ask Stacy podcast, do you want to tell people how to um, how to submit questions? Sure, sure. Uh, feel free to go to the Community Cats Podcast Facebook page, and you can always uh, submit questions there, as well as folks can email me, Stacy, at communitycatspodcast.com. And I would highly recommend folks, if they could please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and uh, put a review there. That would be highly welcomed by me. I'm trying to get us up on the new and noteworthy page at iTunes. I don't know if it's a possible dream or an impossible dream, but uh, I would love to have that happen. But yes, questions for the next show would be fantastic. And you can certainly always find me through Facebook as well as through the website, www.communitycatspodcast.com. And please support the show, share with friends. You know, this show is for you. The questions are to help you. Uh, I just want to give everybody as many tools as possible to make their community a great place for cats. Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll be talking to you again uh, in the future. Thank you again, Lisa, for helping out so much. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats Podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone. Wow.